0: This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to this special series on the FCPA Compliance Report on Wirecard. Mikhail Ryder Gordon and myself are going to be exploring the Wirecard case and its implications in a deep dive over a multi-part podcast series. Today, we take a look at the last week's events and short sellers and what they brought to the Wirecard saga. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Mikhail Ryder Gordon. Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors for our continuing exploration of all things Wirecard. First of all, Mikhail, welcome back.
1: It's my pleasure to be back.
0: So, uh, one MDB aside, which may settle uh, sometime in 2020, this may be the most fascinating accounting and uh, scandal and fraud scandal in some time, uh, Mikhail, but could we give our listeners uh, sort of an update of where things ended, and we're recording this on Sunday, July 26. So by the time this posts later in the week, there may be additional updates.
1: Indeed, at the at the pace uh, that we've seen developments uh, emerge, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised at all. But yes, let's. It's fair to say quite a bit has happened since our last episode, uh, only a week ago. So let's reacquaint listeners with the primary actors and catch up on where they are today. So we have first up Marcus Braun, right, disgraced CEO of Wirecard. Well, Braun had been arrested and then released on bail. Uh, he, he was claiming he knew nothing of the fraud up until a few days ago. On Wednesday, July 24th, Braun was rearrested and his 5 million euro bond rescinded. Oops. So this may be, have maybe has a lot to do with another former Wirecard exec, Oliver Bellenhaus, who we discussed on the last episode. Bellenhaus, as you may recall, ran the Dubai-based Wirecard subsidiary, Card Systems Middle East. He returned to Germany and was arrested a couple of weeks ago. This week, Bellenhaus was first to the post. He voluntarily gave himself up and admitted, and this is the important part, admitted wrongdoing and his involvement in this multi-billion euro fraud. Following Bellenhaus's confession, Braun gets re-arrested, and two other former Wirecard execs, Burkhard and who's the former CFO of Wirecard, and Stefan von Erfa, former head of accounting, are arrested alongside him. Now, the Munich State Prosecutor's Office has confirmed that it is on the strength of the testimony of this cooperating witness that has led to these arrests. Sounds like Bellenhouse. Braun Ley, and Von Urfa are now being investigated for commercial criminal fraud, breach of trust, false accounting, and market manipulation. Now, Lay's attorney says Lay is now cooperating as well. Meanwhile, Braun still denying any wrongdoing. Then we have Jan Marsalek, former COO of Wirecard. Now, recall last week at the end of our podcast... Marcelik was on the run from no less than three Western intelligence agencies, the Singaporean police and German regulators and probably half a dozen other uh, investigatory agencies. Marsalek surfaced the other day in, wait for this, Moscow. Der Spiegel, the German publication, the media outlet, and Bellingcat, by the way, big shout out for Bellingcat, had broken a story about Marsalek's frequent travel to Russia and, uh, in, and and tune in later for a special episode dedicated just to this guy. However, their story had traced him to Belarus, and it wasn't confirmed until midweek when two FSB-blessed Russian media outlets carried the story that Marcellik is parked in Moscow under the protection of the Russian GRU, that's the military intelligence arm, so we can't wait to dive further into that. Uh, Side of Wirecard. In the meantime, back on the regulatory side, the Philippine Anti-Money Laundering Council, AMLEC, announced they have expanded their investigation into Wirecard as it relates to just their country, having now identified 57 people and entities of interest. Mauritius Financial Services Commission issued a press release to say that their Bank of Mauritius and the Financial Services Commission of that country are jointly investigating Wirecard in connection to probable round-tripping and breaches of its AML-TF regulations. That's threat finance for those of you who aren't keeping up with all of our acronyms. An indictment filed by the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York Southern District back in March of this year has now been tied to Wirecard as well. So that indictment is against uh, Hamid Akhavan and his German business partner, Ruben uh, Weingart, for their conspiracy to deceive U.S. financial institutions into processing over $100 in credit and debit card payments for the purchase and delivery of cannabis products. In other words, they were committing transaction laundering and later we'll dive into the seedier side of Wirecard's processing and the nexus to other money laundering cases. So all of that has happened. And along the way, the German government has discovered some awkward political connections to Wirecard that they are now trying to sort out. And we'll discuss that in a little bit. Uh, as have the Austrians. German regular Boff, regulator Boffin is being sued by a group of investors The EU is investigating Germany for allowing Wirecard to go as long as it did unsupervised. So, seven days, just another dull week in the Wirecard news cycle.
0: It's just incredible, and the, of course, speed at which social media amplifies all this makes this even more uh, dramatic. But what we wanted to do in this episode was maybe take a step back and explain some of the not key concepts, but key players in the entire card history and how they relate to uh, bringing the company down, the questions they have raised, how they may be involved going forward, because both uh, Mikhail and myself see this as not only an ongoing story, but a story that will impact many other disparate interests going forward. So, uh, Miguel, I wondered if we might start with uh, a little bit of an explanation of not only short sellers, but what is a short seller? And more importantly, what was their role in the Wirecard imbroglio?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And short sellers here play an absolutely central role. Um, so what what is a short seller, right? Short selling is a long practice means of a gaining from downward movements in asset prices. So, a short, a short seller will borrow shares or other financial instruments, could be currencies, uh, oil contracts, but they'll borrow those from an investor in a company with the idea that the price is going to fall. They will then sh- sell those borrowed shares and buy them back in the future to return the loan. So, Hedge fund short sellers who believe a company is overvalued will borrow those shares, right? They'll sell them. And if and when that stock price falls, they'll repurchase the shares they sold, hand them back to the original investor that they borrowed them from, and pocket that difference. They're arbitraging that difference between the high price at which they sold them early on and the low price they paid when they repurchased them. It's only possible for an investor to short a stock or other instrument if there's another investor willing to bet that the shares or commodities will not fall as far, at least as far as the short seller believes. Many short sellers now use derivatives which provide similar exposures but an easier to trade than uh, shares. Uh, most commonly, this would be done using futures or options. Uh, there's even a firm now, Equilend, uh, that has actually developed a new electronic marketplace for stock borrowing. That said, um, given the nature of of this type of selling and buying, most of this borrowing for short-selling happens, as they say, over-the-counter. And and typically, people lending and borrowing shares already have a long-established relationship.
0: I don't know if it is a historical anomaly, but my sense is uh, somewhere in the back of my head, I was either brought up to believe short selling was bad or uh, short sellers got a negative attitude, especially around the, uh, <clears throat> the last tech bubble from the end of the century into the early part of the first decade of this year. Yet we really see short sellers, I think providing a very important uh, part of market information, market discussion, and really adding to the robust uh, investor community uh, would that be a fair assessment, or do you see something completely different?
1: Well, it's it's a controversial. It's, it's been controversial for many years. So um, first, let's take the first part of the question um, about is it wrong or prohibited? It's it's not illegal. Um, however, interestingly, both Christianity and, and Islam have traditionally disapproved of short selling. It goes that far back. Uh, the Church of England has actually spoken against it. Um, In 2008, uh, two of the Church of England's most senior clerics, uh, Dr. Rowan Williams, who was then Archbishop of Canterbury and the Archbishop of York, uh, John Santamu, launched very public and scathing attacks on short sellers. And and in fact, they were at an event for, of all things, the Worshipful Company of International Bankers. and, and in a speech there at this, at this dinner, they called them, short sellers, bank robbers and asset strippers. It was a very public um, excoriation. Some years ago, even um, Scotland's first minister, for instance, Alex Salmond, uh, called them uh, spivs and speculators uh, – for the Church of England, it was a little bit of an embarrassment when it later uh, became known that Church of England had been earning fees from having lent out shares from holdings in its pension fund to short sellers, and they were doing quite well by it, as a matter of fact. Um, so, I want to I step back on how, how both the lenders earn money in addition to the short sellers, because uh, there's a sort of a misconception that somehow these short sellers are profiting uh, uniquely. Um, you don't just take possession of someone's invest some investor's shares for nothing, right? Typically, the short seller is going to provo- provide some form of collateral surety. Uh, Could be cash; that's the most common. Typically, 102% of the share value at the time of the borrow, and then additionally, the lending investor earns a borrowing fee, which is usually interest on that collateral, and and uh, the fees the fees actually help predict how many short sellers are borrowing at any one time of that company's shares. So if there aren't many borrowing, um, the fees may be nominal, maybe a quarter percent per year. However, the more short sellers, uh, borrowing the higher the fees. So some can get up to some eye watering numbers, 50% or more. That's, that's seriously risky territory. Um, Share lenders can also recall or demand their shares back with pretty minimal notice, which could leave a burning hole in the short seller's pocket if that share price has not fallen. Uh, so, and sometimes short sellers, when so many jump in uh, to a particular company selling off those shares, they can cause the price uh, to drop, triggering the entire market just because of the volume of shares. Uh, that are going up on the market for sale, they can trigger market panic. So it's it's a careful balance. And and if you want to know like, how many how many company shares are being shorted, look at the number being borrowed. That's a really good indicator um, of the short position. Now some regulators have banned certain forms of short selling. So for instance, in the UK, the FSA has banned short selling of bank stocks. Um, Short sellers in some jurisdictions uh, may self-regulate them, um, mindful of liable laws. Um, You know, in the U.S., freedom of speech laws help protect short sellers who say unflattering things about companies whose stock prices maybe don't quite align with what the financial statements say. Um, So, when short sellers, for instance, began publishing lengthy reports highlighted Wirecard's accounting irregularities and questioned the soundness of some of the company's acquisitions. In this case, with Wirecard, Germany's Boffin, the regulator, actually banned short-selling of Wirecard. Short-sellers have been around a long time, um, but a a more recent form uh, might be uh, considered activist short-selling. Activist uh, short-sellers really aim to identify serious problems with companies that are not widely known, and then to try to inform the market about those problems. Now, obviously, they're not going to inform the market until they're they're in a comfortable position to do so. But the sellers emphasize that they are often drawing attention to uncomfortable truths about a company's financial position. Uh, Jim Chanos, who's uh, a very well-known short seller, uh, he made – his first real packet of money off the Enron scandal. He shorted Enron. He he says he is a real-time, this is his quote, real-time financial detective who's incentivized to root out fraud. Essentially, when activist short sellers or hedge funds publicize information that highlight that a company's claims don't stand up to facts or its financial position really isn't as so strong as to warrant that high share price, they're telling the market, those shares really aren't as valuable as you think, and here's why. And an activist short sellers will assert that they're actually helping the market and other investors by exposing the real value of a company's shares. Uh, they don't just blurt this out, they perform meticulous analysis and research, and they're buying and selling the shares before the market's fully aware of the negative information. Because once that information does become widely known, in theory, the share price is going to effectively adjust and price those concerns into the value, and then the price is going to drop. Now, with Wirecard, as, as we've seen, that wasn't always such a straightforward process. Activist short-selling, um, you know, it, it it doesn't, for instance... lots of people right now are going, oh, great, I'm going to become a short seller. I know all sorts of bad things about companies and misdeeds. Um, It's not about identifying purely ethical violations like selling vape pens to children or having a supply chain that includes conflict minerals, polluting the ocean and so on. It's fundamentally about identifying information that is material to the value of a company. Those that excel at identifying contradictions in what a company's management may say or checking facts on the ground against the company's claims, uh, are, they're the ones who are going to profit, but only when other investors lose money for failing to recognize those same inconsistencies and continuing to hold on or continuing to invest at that higher share price of that particular company. Short sellers are on the hunt for what's called legal fraud. Uh, That is an intent to deceive the market. It could come from creative accounting, playing fast and loose with the value of acquisitions that make it appear the company is really growing when it isn't, using goodwill too expansively, or when a company that makes widgets, for instance, suddenly uh, refashions itself as fintech. Uh, or begins to make claims of unique prowess via the adoption of cutting edge technology. Only the descriptions don't make a lot of sense and when you when you start to get into the information behind that, it it doesn't add up. Think back to our first episode where we discussed some of the bizarre uh, statements uh, Wirecard CEO Marcus Braun made, right. Same thing, before Wirecard, uh, Enron Enron was the poster child for having engaged in what's called sharp accounting practices. You know, um, I think that a friend of mine's father uh, used to be the head of the Bureau of Prisons here in the U.S., and he would describe um, what his white-collar inmates had engaged in as sharp business practices. Short sellers need to be highly skeptical not accept the numbers and firms' financial statements as hard facts, and essentially engage in research not unlike investigative journalism. Start with the money. The financial statements work out from there. What the company says about itself, can it be verified? A really fascinating study was conducted a few years back in 2014. A couple of economists, uh, Alexander Lungfist and um, uh, Wenlan Chin who were with the U.S. National Bureau of Economic Research. And they decided to ask, how constraining are limits to arbitrage? And they were focused on short sellers. So what they wanted to examine were recent financial innovations that allowed limits to arbitrage to be sidestepped and overvaluation of exchange-traded shares, um, thereby to be corrected even in settings characterized by extreme costs of information discovery and severe short sale constraints. So this is all about how expensive it is to take these positions as short sellers and and were there any, any corrections because of this and what were the limitations here? So these two researchers read through five years of reports on every single corporation that was traded on US exchanges. Every single report issued by short sellers about any company that was traded on any U.S. exchange. And what they found was on the day an act of a short seller, be it an individual or hedge hedge funds research group, published negative information about a listed company, that company's share price fell on average about 8%, 8 8.2% in in their paper. The prices, though, didn't bounce back as one might expect, even when the allegations weren't well-supported. Against the greater market, these targeted companies were down comparatively on average by 20%. But those short sellers who had evidence being right about problems at these companies before tended to be listened to by the market, and the share prices of the companies these short sellers issued negative reports on, their share prices stayed down. Why? If these short sellers and their research were trusted in the marketplace, the street. Those institutional investors who had been so positive uh, about the company uh, now began to revise their opinions, predicated on what these trusted sellers had drawn their attention to. Regular investors began, you know, began to divest, keeping the share price down. So these researchers identified a couple of key things, and I'm quoting here. One, credibility is key. Arbitragers who lack or lose a track record of producing reliable new evidence are ignored by investors, and so do not move prices. Producing new evidence is also key. Arbitragers or short sellers who simply expressed the opinion that a stock is overvalued based purely on existing data, they were similarly ignored by investors. Now, this is where their study, which is fascinating in and of itself, but it gets really interesting and eye-opening. When we discover that 25% of the corporations that Lungfist and Chin researched during that five-year span, remember, this is a quarter of U.S. exchange-listed companies that short sellers had published negative findings questioning questioning the share price and the value of that share price because of information they had uncovered, 25% of that population that Lingfest and Chen examined ended up being investigated by the DOJ or the SEC. So for activist short sellers, whilst they stand to make a good deal of money, it isn't always the only motivation for their activism. Many have stated very publicly that they do this to unearth corporate malfeasance, and that brings us to Wirecard.
0: And what was the relationship of short sellers to Wirecard, McCall?
1: So short sellers, um, are not infrequently, will share their findings or voice their concerns to regulators. They don't just publish to the investment market, but they also will take their uh, their. Research to regulators. So, for instance, uh, Fami Kadir of, uh, Saskatch Capital, who was a short seller of Wirecard, wrote to Boffin in 2019 saying, quote, short selling can be a valuable indicator of fraud and misrepresentation. Unfortunately, by the time Kadir was writing, Boffin had already imposed a temporary ban on the shorting of Wirecard stock. So let's do a quick run-through of some of the short-sellers who publicly declared their concerns about Wirecard. Perhaps the best-known short-seller of Wirecard is John Hempton, who leads Bronte Capital. For eight long years, Hempton didn't back down. His um, Almathea fund lost overall on Wirecard, despite Hempton being absolutely vindicated Since 2012, Hempton had been questioning Wirecard, and his skepticism started when he figured out that one of Wirecard's alleged payment partner acquisitions in Indonesia didn't actually exist. It just didn't exist. And he drew attention to that. Nothing. Nothing happened. In 2013, right, on the heels of Hempton's report, Dan Yu, a short seller with Gotham City Research, became suspicious of the types of transaction Wirecard was handling, that high-risk stuff we mentioned like online gambling and porn sites. Now, these aren't only legally problematic in many jurisdictions, they are ultimately frequently tied to money laundering as we saw in some of the early cases from 2009, 2010, where Wirecard was the banker processor of choice for several laundering efforts. And we're gonna deep dive into that next episode, really juicy stuff, so stay tuned on that one. Nothing happens. In 2014, Ennismore Fund Management, another short seller, had examined Wirecard's Asia operations via what paperwork around it existed at the time. And they looked at Wirecard's balance sheet and assets and found that the various companies Wirecard was acquiring in that region weren't really worth much. Moore published a report coming to the conclusion this just doesn't add up. Again, nothing. That same year, so 2014, Mark Hiley, whose research firm is The Analyst, publishes the first of what would ultimately be, wait for this, 43 notes querying Wirecard's accounting and saying, look, something's not right here. But what happens? Instead of these hedge funds uh, profiting, they got burnt. The stock, Wirecard stock, continued to surge upward despite questions multiple short sellers had raised at this juncture. So then what happens? 2015, and, and this guy becomes a major player in, in the subsequent development, Matthew Earle. He's the co-founder of, at the time his, his company was called Shadowfall Capital and Research. Under his own name, He publishes concerns about Wirecard, and and he explains why. And and we'll return to Earl's story in just a moment. On the heels of Earl's first publication, questioning Wirecard, another hedge fund manager at Valiant Capital traced public filings around a deal Wirecard had announced involving an Indian company it was acquiring via what they claimed – this is Wirecard, was a publicity-shy private equity firm based in Mauritius. Conclusion from Valiant in its report, fraud. So let's go back to Earl. Earl comes back in 2016 using his nom de plume, Zotara Research. He and another short seller, Fraser Paring, published this highly damning report. It's 100-plus pages on Wirecard, and this is actually one of the things that, that uh, intrigues the Financial Times investigative reporters. Unfortunately for Earl and Paring, German regulators do respond, but not in the way that they anticipated. They thought German regulators are going to investigate Wirecard. Instead, what happens? They start to be investigated. And and last month, Earl wrote an op-ed piece in the Daily Telegraph where he said, if one, quote, wanted to write a manual on fraud, Wirecard would be cited in every chapter. And if one wrote a textbook on corporate espionage, Wirecard would feature on every page. So what happened after so many short sellers warned of fraud by Wirecard? Right? At this juncture, we're... We're in quite a number of years here of of short sellers essentially blowing a whistle, right? Well, it's kind of useful to provide some context around the Sotera report because that, that really is the start of the house of cards, wire cards, house of cards falling. Zatara had written their report after German police had carried out a large-scale raid of Wirecard in December of 2015. That's not widely known. Why had they raided the offices? For suspected money laundering. The raid was in a response to an MLAT from U.S. DOJ. So again, hold that money laundering thought to to the side and let's stay with the short sellers for a moment. That prompts... Earl to write Earl and Perry to write this 100-plus page damning report with all sorts of supporting evidence. May of 2016, after they issued the Satara report, Boffin does send a report to Munich prosecutors, and it does have something to do with Wirecard. But in this case, Boffin wasn't accusing Wirecard of malfeasance. Instead, they outline a case against what it they call, quote, a network of suspects involved in market manipulation. And they criticize Zatara research for, quote, emphasizing incriminating information, but nothing that spoke in favor of Wirecard. So although factually accurate, they said Zatara's reports were misleading. They were so negative. It wasn't very nice. You know, they said unpleasant things about Wirecard. In fact, in that report, Boffin's, not Zatara's, so this is Boffin's report to the Munich prosecutors, they actually point to the fact that Braun had bought shares in Wirecard, which in their minds demonstrated his faith in the company. They actually wrote to the prosecutor that he, Braun, is, quote, convinced of the positive development of his company, as if the mere act of endorsement by a CEO is sufficient evidence that the company's financial assertions are reliable. By mid-2016, Boffin had sent this 45-page report to prosecutors, and they urged them to launch a criminal inquiry into 37 investors. These are short sellers, including those in the UK and the US. The Munich Prosecutor's Office spends the next four years investigating the investors who bet against Wirecard shares, these short sellers. Now, imagine if they'd put that much effort into investigating Wirecard. In fact, after the Zatara report, Wirecard's lawyers go to Boffin and ask them to investigate as well. So now now we we have the lawyers from Wirecard going to Boffin saying, "Wow." you need to stop these darn short sellers. And often going to the Munich prosecutors saying, yeah, you should investigate these short sellers who have highlighted all of these deficiencies in Wirecard's finances. So as the autopsy of the company has begun, we've actually seen email correspondence surface um, from Wirecard's counsel, for instance, saying any help that Boffin could quote provide to us is very much appreciated. And Boffin confirming to Wirecard's counsel the same day that it's investigating these investors. Yeah. At one point, the German prosecutors then try to convince the UK's FCA to investigate the short sellers, particularly those based in London. The FCA reads through. The Munich prosecutor's report and concludes that the Germans' evidence against the short sellers is really not sufficient. And again, autopsy uh, the autopsy days, another memo has surfaced, this one, an internal memo from February of 20, uh, 2017, and in it, an official at, at the state prosecutor's office in Munich documents their results from discussions with the FCA. And it recounts that they told the FCA that its support for the allegations was, quote, trading behavior of the suspects, that's the short sellers, as well as anonymous tips by email about their alleged connections with the Zotara report. Well, the short sellers wrote the Zotara report, so yes, they would be connected to it. Not surprisingly, the, FC, <laughs> the FCA demurs, noting that said information would eh, not really be sufficient for a search warrant. Is that the end of it? No, far from it. These short sellers were subsequently treated just atrociously. One was convicted by the Munich prosecutors and jailed for saying precisely the things about Wirecard that have now been proven to be true. Things got very ugly for short sellers um, of, of Wirecard. Social media trolls leapt to Wirecard's defense and hedge funds that had shorted the company actually became the target of sophisticated hacking operations. And, uh, and eventually, the hacking um, is so bad, it gets investigated by a Canadian academic research group, um, which, which we'll go back to in, in a moment. Some of the short sellers are actually physically targeted. They're followed around London and elsewhere by private detectives and hired goons that Wirecard had retained. Earl, remember, one of our co-authors of the TAR report, had people surveilling his house for months, following him around London, taking his photos. A former Libyan intelligence chief, Rami El-Obaithi, who was also a shareholder in Wirecard, admitted he paid for the surveillance operation in london targeting these, these short sellers and hedge funds and and we'll meet obadi again when we talk about wirecard's nexus to various countries intelligence agencies and that's an episode for another day but this surveillance operation against these short sellers it features no fewer than 28 pis wirecard fire law firm jones day would eventually admit to having employed these, these private investigators. So some of these hedge fund managers, right, they've shorted the stock, and this is the summer of 2016, and the Satara report is rippling across around the world. They, they tell them, uh, they tell the Southern Investigative Reporting Foundation, um, which is a financial investigative reporting group, that they too have observed, surveillance operations against them in other countries, not just the UK, and they've received legal threats from Wirecard. The FT unearthed this German document um, when it was looking into the Wirecard. and It was created by a European PI firm, and it basically this document sets forth a sophisticated eavesdropping initiative in the UK targeting not just short sellers but journalists who were deemed to have hurt Wirecard's feelings with their queries and challenges into its business operations. And included in the plan were discussions of hacking, pinging people's cell phones for geolocation data, inserting man-in-the-middle attacks, and that's, that's so they can gain access to the phone calls. Even tracking Swift data to ascertain if these naysayers were being paid to expose negative information about Wirecard. Peering the other co-author of the terror report, made a claim which was never fully substantiated, but there was a police report filed that he had supposedly been held against his will by two Eastern European men who had forced their way into his car when he dropped his daughter off at school. Peering claimed that they demanded he tell them everything he knew about the terror report and Earl. Many of the short sellers, in fact, most of them, were targets of email phishing attacks, sustained attacks. Citizen Lab, which is our our Canadian um, our Canadian research group, they're an academic research group. They focus on the study of digital threats to civil society. Well, they get called in by Earl, and they end up compiling an investigative report on sophisticated hacking attacks perpetrated on hedge funds. Anybody who shorted Wirecard. Citizen uh, Lab's report identified a global hacking ring run out of the company in India. And Earl was just one of many of their targets. And whilst Citizen Lab declined uh, to reveal if they had connected directly the Indian hacking operation to Wirecard, they did share their findings with U.S. DOJ. And DOJ is now said to be conducting their own investigation into that side. Earl was the target of this just gross online smear campaign that kicked off in December of 2016. This was followed by two thugs showing up at his home one night trying to question him about his report. He was interviewed on on NPR about it, and he explained he assumed that the German regulators would do things by the book. So he called Boffin's whistleblower hotline to report that these thugs and this intimidation campaign was going on, assuming the German regulator would want to put a stop to it and maybe even investigate what Wirecard was up to and if they were behind this assault. Instead, the person who answered the hotline after hearing that the matter involved Wirecard hung up on him. So he went to Germany. He flew out to Germany and made a presentation to another set of German authorities, a prosecutor and a detective. Nothing happened. For two years, Earl is harassed, stalked in the street and online, and Citizen Lab had said they have never encountered, in all their research and work, any one person who received so many phishing attacks. And, and this is a group that, like tracks cyber stalkers for a living. When did things change? When did they turn around? When were their suspicions vindicated? Things actually didn't improve right away, despite all of that going on. Short-seller research group MCA Mathematic had been publishing in-depth forensic uh, analysis of of, account, of accounting since early 2019 that evidenced wire frauds, um, shady dealings, and questionable accounting practices in their operations in Brazil, Turkey, and other, other locations. TCI management wrote to the chairman um, of Wirecard Supervisory Board in April of this year and highlighted the KPMG damning forensic report. You know, and this report, of course, it recounted a billion euros cash payments missing, inability to confirm beneficial owners of several Wirecard subsidiaries and payment partners, highlighted the complete absence of all due diligence by Wirecard, you know, things missing in such as no customer names, no no contracts, no transaction data or bank statements uh, to substantiate much of Wirecard's business. Um, And in this letter, um, two of TCI's execs, Chris Hohn and Max Schroeder, called for the removal of CEO Marcus Braun. Still nothing. It wasn't until everything fell apart this summer that opinions about what these short sellers have been saying finally changed. Uh, Short seller Leo Perry, who runs uh, Ennismore Fund Management, was very recently interviewed by the FT, and he specifically noted that short sellers had consistently underestimated people's ability to look the other way. Wirecard's bankers, wirecard's investors, and the regulators, they just didn't want to believe this. The president of Boff and Felix Heufeld, finally, and only this past week, he finally apologized for Germany's failure to prevent this massive fraud. And rather belatedly, you know, what's four years between friends, right? Acknowledged, and this is his quote, the role that, quote, journalists, analysts, and oh yes, let it be short sellers, who have been digging out inconsistency, pers- inconsistencies persistently and rigorously. So last year, a, a manager with short seller Valiant presented a summary of his years of research into Wirecard, and he titled the presentation, Wirecard, Where Short Sellers Go to Retire. So most, not all, Hampton <clears throat> did not fare as well because he held on for so long, but those who had held on doggedly to their wire card short positions or who showed up at the end when it couldn't hide its accounting tricks any longer, they netted billions of euros in profits. Uh, the Wall Street Journal claimed short sellers made some $2.6 billion from the wire card failure, uh, maybe more, maybe a little less. co uh, Coacher management, TCI Fund, uh, Greenvale Capital, Darsana Capital um, were among the fund's Uh, short sellers with the longest short positions who did very well. Jim Chanos cleared $100 Uh, Really, the lesson here is that it may be time for regulators and maybe a few institutional investors to start adopting some of the skepticism and investigatory skills of short sellers. They might catch frauds and irregularities sooner. You know, Chanos has called this current era the golden age of corporate fraud,
0: and considering we both lived through Enron and WorldCom, that's a more than amazing statement.
1: It, it really is. Um, but when you think back to um, the research that was doing, done for the uh, Bureau of Economic Research, where you know a quarter of the companies uh, that short sellers had highlighted in just that, that five-year span, a quarter of those ended up being investigated by DOJ and SEC. I mean, I, I think that's... that's fairy telling. And, and that was back in 2014. That was a look back. So think about where we are now, um, you know, a, a decade on.
0: <clears throat> McCall, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I look forward to visiting with you again next week to see what next week brings. And perhaps then we can take up the involvement of one of our favorite topics, Germany, Inc. Absolutely. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this special episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. As I said in the introduction, Mikhail, Ryder, Gordon, and myself are going to be taking a deep dive on the Wirecard case over the next several weeks. I hope you will join us again. This special podcast series will focus on the events on the ground and each week, and then we're going to take a deep dive. Some of the topics we're going to cover include... Germany Inc., the regulatory response, what this means for the overall fintech and EU regulatory world, and a variety of other interesting angles to the Wirecard case. I hope you will stick with us throughout this series. I know you will find it incredibly enjoyable as this is one of the largest frauds uh, since the Enron Worldcon days and the largest accounting fraud in Germany since World War II. It's going to be a ton of fun. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Please leave us a review. We would greatly appreciate that on iTunes. The series on Wirecard is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network.